The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Genesis 49. You all turn there? Ready for it? Well, as we do, I have a question for you. Have you ever had a family meeting? Ever been a part of one where maybe your parents called you and your siblings and you gathered around the living room and uh, you, uh, you know, there was some sort of news to share? Or maybe you called it with your children and your grandchildren and you, know, you called everyone to your house or maybe it was on the phone or something, conference call, because you had some news to break. Maybe it was, there was uh, just some details in the family, a, a sickness, a death, or an estate to settle, something like that where you gathered your family together. In my house, our family meetings are, uh, they usually well, because of the age of my kids, revolve around being nice to one another and honoring their mother. When we call family meetings at the Cushman's house, that's usually what they revolve around. But in Genesis 49 now, this is a family meeting. In our chapter here, Jacob is moments from his death. We've been walking through the later part of his life and his son's life. And he is now gathering his 12 sons together for a final blessing and for some funeral instructions. And what the patriarch of this family is doing, he is setting a trajectory for his sons and their families that will continue on through the generations. He's really setting a course for them to live and work for the glory of God in the course of their life. And, you know, really couched in our understanding of God's sovereign control, that's been the theme of Genesis, of him working all things for our good. Jacob is now going to bless his sons before they die, really focusing in on their character, and he's teaching us this point. All throughout our chapter, we're going to get into it, but here's the main point. Write it in your notes, write it in the header of your Bible, Genesis 49, and it is this. We live for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God. It seems pretty simple, right? But it's necessary for each of us to grasp. And you could actually make a case. You're like, preacher, that's not very clever. That's not very you know, unique, because you could maybe say that among every chapter, every verse of the scriptures. Well, I think you'll see here, especially as we begin to read it and break it apart, why this is so profound. We're going to unpack it. But we live to the glory of God. Everything in our life, is to put Christ on display that we might make much of God in our life. So let's read Genesis 49. Now you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. As I read it, and we get a little insight, so we are flies on the wall, so to speak, of this family meeting. Let's go there. Genesis 49 says this, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And now he's going to begin with the firstborn and work his way all through his 12 sons. Ready? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. 
Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessing of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Quite the family meeting, huh? A lot of events, a lot of things, a lot of uh, uh, animal illustrations here. A lot of reference to their character and the things that are to come. So let's look at his words to his sons and let's draw out some meaning and their application to us here in August 2018. What do these things mean for us? Well, to live for the glory of God first means this. If you're taking notes or you're following along, to live for the glory of God means this, that we fight sin. That we fight sin. Notice how he begins his, his blessings, which are actually 
curses to his oldest sons. It is, it's not great. He starts with the firstborn Reuben in verse 3, the one who should be receiving the birthright. He's very complimentary of him. You're my firstborn. You are strong. You're mighty. He says you are preeminent the firstborn in dignity and how he carries himself and how, his, how he is powerful, the strength of his body, the way that he carries himself. It's very complimentary. But what does it say in verse 4? It takes a turn for the worse. Despite all of that, despite the outward way in which he carries himself, his sin of adultery and incest in chapter 35 disqualify him. And forever he will bear the disgrace of this. It's chapter 35, verse 22. We've looked at it uh, before in our study here when he uh, slept with his father's wife, one of his others, not his own mother, but this sin of adultery disqualified him. And likewise, as we continue on, Simeon and Levi, the second and third sons, are also disqualified and nothing good is said about these two sons of his because they are violent, angry, cruel men which was on display for us back in chapter 34. While avenging their sister, they took matters into their own hands. They trifled with the sacred sign of the covenant of circumcision, and they annihilated a whole people group. It was a foolish decision that they made as young adults that now has consequences decades later. Decades later. Because, see, here's the thing. Character counts, and their decisions have consequences don't they one poor decision one foolish decision can have lasting consequences in our life we see this all the time in the news even this week a college football coach is put on leave because he failed he made a he failed to make the right decision by reporting one of his assistant coaches that had been beating up his wife now he's facing consequences. Just a few weeks before that, a Major League Baseball pitcher uh, who made the All-Star game, tweets that he made that were racist and homophobic in nature as a teenager, as a teenager, were somehow surfaced and put out there on display. And so now Major League Baseball is disciplining him and, and things are happening in his life of things that he did as a teen a decade ago are now bearing consequences in his life and those are just the recent examples doesn't it seem like almost every week a celebrity some sort of a pastor maybe your friend something comes out a sin is exposed maybe from decades ago that leaves us wrecked and rather than stand in judgment of them or of reuben and simeon and levi we must take heed lest we fall and fight the sin that crouches at our door. As we read these verses, let them be God's warning to us to sober us up, to fight against the sin that is in our life. Adultery, Proverbs 6 says, is a disgrace that is never wiped away. It is one of those things that, that always dogs us and thus should not be toyed with. In the same chapter of Proverbs 6, it says, who can carry fire close to his chest and not get burned? It is a dangerous game to play if you're looking at explicit material, if you're flirting with that coworker, if you're texting an ex. Let Jacob's warning to 
Reuben here, be your warning from the Lord to flee from those things. Don't tempt it. Don't tempt life. Don't make a foolish decision that will have lasting consequences in your life. And not just that, but anger here. Anger in Simeon and Levi is equally destructive, blinding us and making us stupid. It's like a tornado in our, in our life that wrecks everything in its path. And so we who live for God's glory, we fight against these things. We fight against these things. As James 1 says, that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry because the anger of man does not what? Does not produce the righteousness of God. We want to live for the glory of God, so we fight against it. We fight against it. But how do we do it? It's easy to say that, right? We gotta fight against it. Yeah, yeah, I don't wanna do those things. I don't wanna do it. So how do we do it? How do we fight especially when we know how helpless and how weak we are on our own. Praise God in his infinite mercy and his infinite wisdom that we who are in Christ, the one who successfully fought against sin, were given his spirit who enables us to fight. Amen? Who enables us to fight. And he gave us a whole battalion of people to fight with us. See, this isn't a war that we have to fight on our own, but the people around you are those in the fight with you who can pray for you, who can offer help and counsel and wisdom. This is what Hebrews 3 tells us. Look here, it's on the screen. Hebrews 3 says this. This is our role in one another's life. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And now this word exhortation, it kind of seems harsh. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it's a rebuke where we need to say, hey, don't go that way. Don't do that. It's, there's more, that's headed in the wrong direction. But God has put us in one another's life to see where we are blind, to come around in love for one another and for the Lord to help us with these things. And God has given us really three layers of defense. He's given us three layers of defense. First, he's given us the company of Christ, which is the church. What you are here this morning, God's people gathering on the Lord's day, coming early, staying late, intentional about impacting one another and growing in the truth. We are those people, this company of Christ, as we come, as we turn our attention to Christ, as we worship him, as we sit under his word, God is doing his work through this, as our attention is on those things and not on the sin that so easily entangles us. God does his work to equip you through his people, through his word, by his spirit, in exactly what we're doing here this morning. But even closer in in that, you have a small group, a squadron of people weekly meeting together to carry out the one another's like we just read. That's the beauty of meeting together, of, of, of sharing with one another and encouraging one another in small group, of going deeper into the message, of going deeper into God's word, of talking about real life situations so that we can apply the truths that we see in scripture, making, taking them from the abstract and making them very applicational for our life. God in his kindness has given these people, this smaller group, to come around and to help support you. And third, even more close, he's given you one person. He's given you that accountability partner, that friend that has your back, that's in the bunker with you, that knows you deeply. Husbands and wives, this is part of what it means to be one flesh. 
as we fight against sin, that we can pray for one another, that we are helping one another, that we are holding one another accountable. See, our husbands and wives, they're not the people we fight with. We fight for our spouse. We fight for our spouse where nothing is hidden, nothing is off limits. There's not like this secret life that you have from your spouse that where you have a, a special code on your phone that they can't get into or an email that, that they have, uh, don't have access to. Nothing is open. This is off limits. We are open within our marriages. But it doesn't just stop there doesn't just stop there because God wants a person in our life. It's not just limited to that, whether you're married or not. God has given you a body of believers around you. He has encouraged us to find that friend who sticks closer than a brother, the Proverbs said. Somebody that is even, knows you even better than a sibling. That person that is committed to your holiness as much or as more than even you are. Do you have that person in your life? Do you have that friend, a brother or a sister in the Lord that's committed to your holiness, that's committed to your marriage, that's committed to helping you, not just as you fight against sin, but that's encouraging you. A person that you can go to and seeking counsel. Hey, you know what, today I'm struggling here. Today I need some encouragement. Today, you know, I don't necessarily know uh, the right course of action in this. Can, you know, do you have any wisdom? Do you have any, can you just pray for me? Do you have that person in your life? If not, here's an assignment. Make that a priority. Find a person like that who loves you, who loves the Lord, and ask them for it. Don't just assume. Some of you are like, yeah, I think this person. But don't just assume that they are that person. Tell them, invite it, make time for it. See, too much is at stake. Your life, your reputation, your kids, your grandkids, too much is at stake if we go the way of sin. We see the lasting impact here in Reuben and Simeon and Levi's life. Too much is at stake in your own life, but also to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Maybe you, like me, as I have this week, are feeling the weight of these things. We're feeling the weight of the destruction of what sin maybe has or can or is doing in your life. And praise God, there is a way out of it. We can fight against it. We can repent of it. it doesn't, even though the world doesn't value things like forgiveness and transformation, here's the body of Christ, we do. We do. And just because something was once true of you, doesn't mean it has to be today or tomorrow. When we take seriously these things as we say, you know what, I don't want to live that way, but I want to live for you, Lord. The Lord doesn't just turn you away. He doesn't just say, well, well nope, mess it up. He graciously draws you in. He says, yeah, my grace is sufficient for you. There's forgiveness found in me. Because you want to know the cool part about God's redemptive story? It's not in this passage here. But as the Bible will continue to unfold and Israel is uh, formed as a nation, God's redemptive kindness, guess who becomes the priestly line in the kingdom of Israel? The tribe of Levi. The ones who are here, the, one of the family that is being cursed for their anger, violence, and wrath. That God and just his redemptive kindness would take this family as they move into the promised land decades, decades later, and he would set apart this family to be his chosen instruments as the priesthood, mediating between God and man, carrying out the priestly duties of the Old Testament in that time, the tribe where Aaron and Moses would come from. Isn't God so good in his redemptive purposes in that? 
even as we fight sin, God in his grace and his mercy makes things beautiful. It doesn't have to destroy us, but it can produce something beautiful in our testimony. We live for the glory of God when we fight sin. But you know what else? Those are just the first three brothers. We've got nine more to go. But as we move to Judah, here's what it teaches us. Verse 8, we must fear the king. We must fear the king. This, this passage here, these next four verses are glorious verses that, have, uh, th- that are still being played out in their prophetic nature of what is being said here by Jacob thousands of years ago. In verse 8, there's, what, what happens now is, it, is, is all these other sons, there's really a wordplay that happens on their names. And so their character, their kind of the traits, the things that Jacob is blessing them for is a play on words in each of their names. Because Judah literally means to praise. If you name your kid Judah, he's, you know, he should be a great worshiper someday. But here in verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And now with his, the three oldest sons disqualified, Judah is now exalted as the leader. And in these verses, we see here him, his, his uh, reputation and what will come from his sons, that he is the preeminent one. He's the prophesied one. He's the powerful one and the prosperous one. He's compared here. Look how he's compared. He's compared to a mighty lion, the king of the jungle. He's compared to these things. In verses 9 and 10, there's a prophecy in here that weaves its way all throughout the scripture, highlighting in King David, who will come from this tribe uh, a few generations, uh, several hundred years after this, but also culminating in the future millennial reign of Jesus. I want you to see, here we're in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, but look at this scene. We're not going to trace it all the way throughout, but look here in the book of Revelation. It's on the screen for you. This is a scene into heaven, a future event where John is seeing into heaven. He hears this loud voice. There's a scroll that is before him and everybody is weeping because they're saying, who can open this scroll? Who is worthy to open it? Who can, who is righteous enough to open it? Because nobody is and they're weeping loudly. And one of the elders, this is Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. This is speaking of Jesus. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The one who's prophesied back, way back in Genesis 49 is now making his appearance here in the end and being referred to as this lion, as the prophesied one, the powerful one. He's so prosperous. Also, look what, how, uh, uh, ver- what verse 11 says for us. They bind the foal, the donkey, to the choice vine. That the, his body, er, well, the donkeys are tied to it because they are so abundant. The vines are so thick and strong, one, that they can even tie a donkey to it that he wouldn't pull him away. But second, it doesn't even matter how much this donkey eats off of the vines, off the grapevines, because there's so much that whatever that donkey eats to his fill will be minuscule in the overall production and abundance of those vines. This is our king, the one who owns it all, the one who is prosperous. This, 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 this picture here of his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk, that is a, a picture of strength and vitality in his eyes and his muscles and his bones. He's the prosperous, powerful king. This is a noble king, isn't it? 
Judah is a noble king, one to be feared and respected, one whose authority is revered. And C.S. Lewis, he gave us a great gift in writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read those books, C.S. Lewis, or kids' book, Chronicles of Narnia? If you haven't, even if you're an adult, you will love them. Read them to your kids because they will love them even more. And in this, in this series, he gives this depiction of Aslan, the great king of the land, who is a lion. And it's really, it's born out of these scriptural themes. As you're reading this book, C.S. Lewis is a believer, and he's drawing out these scriptural themes in this great story. And so listen to these excerpts from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably the most famous of all his books. In chapter 8, there's a beaver with these kids, and he's telling them about Aslan. And he says this, he's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. And then Beaver, he goes on, he recites this old rhyme about Aslan, and, and it's here that uh, he, he kind of leaves us hanging. Lucy, one of the kids, she asks, is he a man? And the Beaver retorts, he says, no, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. To which this, the, the girls ask, well, is this lion safe? He says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king, I tell you. And then the story kind of continues on. And later then in chapter 12, they're at this stone table. There's this whole scene that is uh, uh, illustrating the, the cross and, and what we know happens in Christ Jesus. And there's a scene that's depicted. And they said this, Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half moon. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now, for when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. Or we might say the radiance of the glory of God. And then they found that they couldn't look at him, and they went all trembly. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. Now they felt glad and quiet and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. This, beloved, is what it means to fear the king. This isn't a craven fear. This isn't like a paralyzing fear. This is a deep reverential awe for the king of glory. As we look to Christ, we are in awe. As our eyes are turned away from the sin and from these the things of the world, and as our attention is turned to Christ, we are in awe. But in another aspect, we are in dread of our sin. As we see the holiness of God, our dread for our own sinfulness of who we are not, draws us to fear, but not in a craven fear, the type of fear that these children felt that was both glad and trembly all at the same time. Imagine yourself before a lion. As if a lion was standing here before you. It's like 
as if you have the glory of Christ before you. You know, we know that our king, well, the king in this story, he turns to the storm table and he offers his life as a ransom for the beloved creatures of Narnia. But our king, the Lion of Judah, would several thousand years after Jacob uttered these words, he would go to Calvary offering his life as the ransom for his beloved. And then he rose again three days later and now he rules and reigns in heaven and we eagerly await his return. Do you fear the king? This is how we live for the glory of God, deep reverential awe for the magnificent one, the prosperous one. We live for God's glory by fighting sin, by fearing the king, but also by our next point here, fulfilling your purpose. Fulfill your purpose. Now, after these first four sons, really the next ones kind of go, uh, they have shorter blessings. They're just a verse, a piece with a, a, a description of them. Joseph gets a little bit, but it shows us really something powerful. See, as he works his way kind of rapidly through the remaining sons, he teaches us in an overarching way that the part they will play in society, in the kingdom, is both various and each valuable. The shorter doesn't necessarily mean that they are insignificant. Look at what he, how he talks about Zebulun. Zebulun is a sailor. They take to the seas. They are in uh, 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 the industry that, in the shipping industry, you might say. Issachar is a manual laborer. He's built strong. But we're also told that he's lazy. He looks for resting places. And out of his laziness, even though he's a hard-working, strong-built man, he's put into forced labor, into slavery, becoming a servant out of his laziness. Verse 16, Dan is in law enforcement. He says he's a, a judge. You know, if you read ahead into the book of Judges, Samson comes from his line, actually. He's compared to a serpent, the, you know, the law enforcement that is there waiting to catch bad guys. Verse 19 here is a really kind of a funny play on words. Gad is a soldier. He's the guy that you want defending you. It says raiders shall raid, raid, actually. Gad just simply means raid or raiders. And so raiders shall raid, raid, but he shall raid at their heels. He's the soldier fighting and defending. He's a warrior. Verse 20, Asher is a chef. He's an exquisite chef, by the way. He's the one that you want to invite you over for dinner. He's the one you want to cater your wedding. He makes rich delicacies. Naphtali, Naphtali is a messenger. It's kind of maybe a little bit weird language. It says a doe let loose. It's a, a picture of a metaphor, a metaphor here of, of, a, of a deer that is uh, being set loose and taking a message, bearing beautiful fawns. Or, or your, your translation may say beautiful words. It's kind of a play on words here. But this is someone in the PR department uh, who's in the communications industry. This is who you want speaking. This is who you want husbands writing your wife a love poem that you can then read to her. The bearer of good news. Joseph is this whole description now in these verses here of being blessed and of abundance. Joseph is a wealthy businessman, prosperous in all his dealings at the hand of God. Not by his own might. No, uh, uh, no credit is given to him, but all credit in these verses is given to the Lord. The mighty one, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He is the wealthy businessman. And then verse 27, Benjamin here. 
He's really a special forces soldier. He brings home all the spoils. He's a ravenous wolf, and he's devouring prey and bringing home the spoil. He's so victorious in everything that he does. And so these brothers, these tr- what will become families and tribes, are like an ecosystem, each having their part in the functioning and the vitality of this ecosystem. It's like the church or the body of Christ, each having their part, their various uh, places and gifts and skills. It's like the human body with all of our various systems, our nervous system, our muscular system, all of our parts working together. And here you need to know this, beloved. So too are the professions that God has given you for his glory and human flourishing. This is, the, this is the, the, the application that we draw out. The things that God has given you, the calling that he has put in your life is various, even among our group that is here, but each is valuable. Each is valuable to the glory of God. So whether you're in the music industry, whether you're a home builder, a road builder, a teacher, a healthcare professional, if you work in finance, retail, engineering, if you make food, raise kids, manage people, or wait tables, if you defend our borders, if you clean up our streets, you put away bad guys, whether your paycheck is a lot or just a little or somewhere in between each calling, vocation, profession, responsibility that God has given you is valuable. Fulfill your purpose in that. Fulfill your purpose. Do it to the glory of God and the joy of your life and those around you. Whatever God has given you, a mind and a skill to do, fulfill that purpose with excellence and integrity for the glory of God, knowing that you are serving him and praying that God will open doors, that you can be his messenger, that you can tell others about him. Each, each a purpose in the sovereignty of God and he has put you there he has brought you here to this city for that reason this is one of the beautiful things that was kind of recaptured out of the reformation and the the church at that time re uh, uh, upholding the skills and things that God has given you in the various things whether you're a student whether you're workforce whether you stay at home and raise kids whatever you do God has given you for that your role in your family in your church in this world embrace it with grace with joy and not with envy or reluctance fulfilling your purpose it is valuable and worthwhile that is what these things teach us finally here we get through all the sons and we get to this end it teaches us to live for the glory of God, we finish well. We finish well. Jacob is old and frail. He's just blessed his sons. He's said all these things. He's taught him to fight sin. He's taught us to, to, uh, uh, to fear the king. He's taught us to fulfill our purpose. And now as he breathes his last, he's teaching us in his old, frail, final words, more than burial instructions, he's saying, finish well. He told this to Joseph just personally in chapter 47, and now with he's with all of his sons, he is communicating these things. This, this was a family grave that he's talking about, as you see here, this cave of Machpelah in the, the east of Mamre, back in Canaan, which is the promised land. His parents are buried there, his grandparents are buried there, and now he is telling them that he passes from this life into the next, that he wants to be buried there. And it's more than just funeral instructions. As we've seen in the 
previous chapters, he is remembering the promise and persevering to the end, finishing well. Because how we finish is just as important as how we live. You can run a great race out in front of everyone, but if you fail to cross the finish line, it doesn't even matter. We finish well. Whatever we do, our life we finish well, but beyond that, finish your project well. Finish your patient care with excellence. Finish your parenting with everything you have, blessing them and setting them up for success. Finish well to the blessing of others and the glory of God. See, this is how we live. This is how we work. This is how we take kind of a confusing passage like this and say, God, I want this to have real impact in my life. And so we live, so we work, because Christ did the greatest work. Not for our own glory. We can't do this on our own. We've already established that. But we work because Christ did the greatest work, dying on our behalf, living the perfect life that we could not do, and now rising again, giving us a spirit that we can even carry out these things. That's the gospel, beloved. That's the beauty of walking with Christ. And then he sends us as his ambassadors, carrying out his message of the gospel. See, apart from Christ, everything that we do, our work, our life, it loses its purpose. It's just the job. It's just something we do. It's just paperwork. It's just numbers. It's just phone calls. It's just busyness. But God, in his infinite wisdom, he lets us in on his plan. He makes known to us the mystery once hidden. What Jacob and his sons here saw dimly. But we now see more clearly in Christ. You know, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. These are things written that were mysterious to them. But now we who, thousands of years later, who know Christ, who stand on the other side of the cross, we see it more clearly. And you know, when we take communion, it's one of those reminders it's one of those reminders of these things. What was foreshadowed in the Old Testament of this one who would come, who would rule and reign, who would give up his life. We now stand on the other side and we look back upon it. We look back upon the truth of what Christ has done for us. And that's why God gave us uh, the, the ordinance of communion. Where we can take it and remember and reflect on what Christ has done for us. And so we're going to do that actually this morning. It's going to be a way that we respond here to the passage. Is we're going to uh, move now and prepare our hearts to take communion. And so just as we begin here, uh, we're gonna, it'll be passed out in just a moment. I'll invite our worship team who will come and, and uh, we'll, we'll play and, and sing a song in response in just a moment. But as you are here in your pews, I want you to just prepare your hearts. See, here's who communion is for. It's for believers. It's those who are in Christ, those who love the gospel, those who love the truths here, those that love the purpose that we have in Christ Jesus. It's for those that, that, that are united to him, united to one another. So if you're a believer today, if you've confessed your sin and confessed Christ as Lord, we want you to enjoy this and to celebrate this with us today. As you're preparing your heart for this, it's, it's meant to be a sober reminder. Am I in Christ? Am I living for the Lord? Or am I living for myself? Am I living in my sin? But it's also a great celebration, beloved. 
We celebrate the purpose that God has given us in our own life. We celebrate what he has done, not in some like weird way, but in a way to say Christ has been victorious. He won what I could not do. And so why don't we take a moment?